When you look at the casual and even dismissive attitude of many Christians toward the church today, it's easy to forget that the church was God's idea. He has designed it, and he sent his son to purchase it with his own blood. Today on Radical with David Platt, we'll begin a series called Radical Restoration, where David encourages us to put aside our own preferences in order to submit to God's priorities for his people. David's sermon today is titled Outside the Camp because obedience to Christ often takes us to difficult and dangerous places. But as Hebrews 13 reminds us, we must be willing to go outside the camp and endure the world's contempt and abuse. Churches and all followers of Christ must decide whether they will live for the short-lived pleasures of this world or the eternal pleasures of the world to come. An interesting note about today's sermon, it was preached on June 11th of 2006, the day that the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama, was voting on whether or not they would appoint a young David Platt as their lead pastor. The vote was an overwhelming yes, and David would go on to shepherd that congregation in Birmingham for over eight years. So here is a young David Platt with a sermon titled, Outside the Camp, from Hebrews chapter 13. Would it be inappropriate for us to just vote at now? <laughs> if, you, if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open them with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. It's way in the back of your Bible. If you're not familiar with where Hebrews is, kind of Go to the end there, you'll find a book of Revelation. Go about seven or eight books back to the left, and you'll find Hebrews. And there's some notes in your worship celebration guide. Feel free to pull those out. They'll help guide our time in God's Word together this morning. It was about a month and a half ago when Heather and I had come into town to meet with the pastor search team for the second or third time. I can't remember exactly when it was, but wrestling with this whole idea, is, is this something the Lord is calling us to do, leading us to do? And it was, it was Easter weekend, and I don't know if you were here on Easter, but if you were, I used some raffle ticket looking things as an illustration uh, during my Easter sermon, and so I went to Walmart that Friday night. We were going to meet with the pastor search team the next morning. I went to Walmart that Friday night to buy those, those tickets, and I took them to the checkout counter, and the lady who was checking me out said, all right, what's your raffling? And I said, well, I'm actually not raffling anything. I'm actually going to use these in a sermon illustration. And she looked at me and she said, oh, so you're a youth pastor? <laughs> I, I said, no, ma'am, actually, I'm preaching right around the corner here at, at the church at Brook Hills. And she looked at me and she said, you're not old enough to preach there. <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am, I know. <laughs> She said, you're supposed to be a youth pastor. You're not old enough to be a pastor. I said, yes, ma'am, I know. <laughs> right that time, Heather walks up. She looks at Heather. Says, he's not old enough to be a pastor. We said, we know. <laughs> then, then this last week, 
We were looking at some homes and getting some inspections. I guess that's a little presumptuous that we started looking at homes. But anyway, we were looking at the inspector. We were talking out in the yard. Uh, Kevin Carroll was there and myself and, and some others. And uh, he, asked, he asked me what was bringing us to town. And I said, well, I'm coming to pastor at the church at Brook Hills. And he kind of went on and didn't really say much in response. We got inside and uh, we were talking again. And he said, now, now what's bringing you to town again? I said... I'm going to pastor the church at Brick Hills. And he kind of laughed. And then he said, no, really, what's bringing you to town? <laughs> That's when Kevin Carroll looked at him and said, I'm the student pastor. This is the senior pastor. <laughs> well, <laughs> I got a feeling that's not the last of the questions. And I got a feeling there are a lot of people who are going to ask a lot of different questions along the way in the coming days. Um, this morning, though, I want, to, I want to ask the questions. I've got a few questions I want to ask the church at Brook Hills, questions that I believe will ultimately determine what God does in and through this church, questions that are much deeper than how old your pastor is. And I think they're questions that the church in America needs to answer, and specifically this morning, the church at Brook Hills needs to answer. And they come from this passage in Hebrews chapter 13. Let me start with you in verse 11, and we're going to read a few verses. And then we'll dive into what this word means to us this morning. It says in verse 11, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us go then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Now, this passage may surprise a few of you. It's kind of a weird passage, a little interesting passage to preach on this morning. Some of you are thinking, well, the new pastor may be kind of weird, preaching on blood of animals and bodies burning outside the camp. But I believe this passage right here, believe it or not, sums up the whole message of the book of Hebrews. And it posed some questions and some challenges for those believers a couple of thousand years ago that I believe are the same questions and challenges that we need to face up to today in the American church and specifically here at the church at Brook Hills. And so I want to ask three questions this morning. And I'll be honest with you, I want us to dive into the deep end from the start, if that's okay. But if you got your notes there, three questions for the church at Brook Hills. Question number one, based on this passage is, will we die in our religion or will we die in our devotion? Will we die in our religion or will we die in our devotion? Now this question springs from the context of this passage. You got to understand the context in order to understand what this passage really means. There's a lot of things we don't know about the book of Hebrews. We don't know exactly who wrote it. There's all kinds of opinions on, on who wrote the book of Hebrews, and nobody really knows for sure. We don't even know exactly the people that it was written to, where they were living at that point. What we do know is this. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians at a time where they were facing some pretty intense persecution, or at least the threat of persecution. There's different theories on exactly what time frame it was written in, but we know from the whole tone of this book that it was written to Jewish Christians who were tempted amidst the persecution around them to fall away from their faith or or just fall away from the mission that God had given to them, that God had entrusted them to make the glory and salvation of Christ known. They were facing this temptation and they were almost, almost going into hiding, almost a little scared to step out. And so that's, that's who this book is written to. 
And so he looks at them and he says, Jesus suffered outside the camp. And we'll get that, get, get, get deeper in that in just a minute. But he says, we need to go with him outside the camp. And, and foundationally, the camp literally means that the people of Jerusalem and the Jew, Jewish people, contemporary Judaism in that day, they revolved around the temple worship. And they were tempted at this point to kind of sit back in the camp, in the Jewish camp, almost trying to live out the Christian life while still living out the Jewish life in the Jewish camp. And this guy says to him, we have got to make a decision at this point. I think if we were to sum up the, the, the people that, that are being addressed here in the book of Hebrews, they had two main problems. Problem number one is they were driven by their formalism. They were driven by formalism. And here's what I mean by that. When I say they were driven by formalism, basically they had become so engrossed in how they worshiped that they had forgotten who they worshiped. They'd gotten so caught up in all the religious practices of Judaism that they would do day after day, week after week, go to the temple, do this, do this, bring this sacrifice, bring this offering. They'd missed out on the whole point of who they were worshiping. It was style without substance. And it's the same exact temptation we face today. We're not Jewish people going to a temple, but we know that in our culture today, particularly our church culture, that there is a great temptation for us to to have a lot of style with no substance. And there are crowds gathering all across the United States this morning who are gathering together to hear a great, great speech and to see some great music and walk away and leave unchanged. And it's just empty. It's formalism. And that's what they were driven by. They were so engrossed in how and what they were doing. They'd missed the whole point altogether. They were driven by formalism. And number two, they were paralyzed by fear. They're paralyzed by fear. They're looking around them. And they know that if they step out, step out of the camp, so to speak, of Judaism, that they could be expelled from that camp altogether. Or they could be imprisoned or even worse. And so you had a picture of people who were driven by formalism and, and paralyzed by fear. And basically they had two options in front of them. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying right here. Here's your two options. Number one, you've got a mission in front of you to make the gospel known. You can either retreat from that mission Or number two, you can risk everything for that mission. You can either retreat or risk everything. Now, what I want us to do this morning, in order to grasp the gravity of what's going on here with this option of whether to retreat or to risk everything for the mission, I want you to see in the Old Testament how over and over and over again God's people have faced these two options, either retreat from the mission or risk everything from the mission. Hold your place here in Hebrews 13. If you've got a Bible, turn with me back to Numbers chapter 13. Let me encourage you to do this. If you don't have a Bible, try to find somebody around you who does, kind of share with them or something like that. I want you to be able to follow along and see this unfold in the Old Testament. Turn me back to Numbers, fourth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then come to chapter 13. As you're turning there, let me just give you the, the picture of what we're about to come in on. Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They've been delivered from Egypt, saved from the slavery they were in there. And there they stand at the edge of the promised land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And that's the place where they were, they were ready to go into the promised land. Moses takes 12 guys and he says, you go into the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that God has promised to give us, and you see how it looks. And you come back and give us a report. And so they come back. And the land is great. And Joshua and Caleb, two of the guys say, man, we need to go. But the other 10 rise up and say differently. Look at chapter 13. Look with me at verse uh, 31. It says, the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. 
We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So listen to what happens. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land? Only let us fall by the sword. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do you see the picture? There they are on the edge of the promised land, and they have two options. Retreat from the mission or risk everything for the mission. To go into the promised land, so named because God had promised it to them. And they start to retreat. Basically what happens after this is Moses and Aaron pray to God, God, please forgive them. God, be gracious. Don't let us go back to Egypt where we were slaves. God, forgive us. I want you to go over to chapter 14. Look with me in verse 20. See how the the Lord responds to them. They retreat from the mission. Moses prays, God, forgive them. Look at chapter 14, verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, And as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Now you got the picture. This is God's mercy and his judgment wrapped up in one. He is merciful. He is gracious. He forgives them. He's not going to let them go back to Egypt where they were slaves. But at the same time, we see his judgment. He says, you retreat from the mission. You will wander in the wilderness until you die. Do you have that picture? It continues on. Look at verse 32. It's pretty serious. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. They retreated from the mission. And every single person of a certain age would wander in the wilderness and completely miss out on the promised land. Let me show you another picture. Judges, chapter 2. Turn over a few books to the right there. After Joshua, you come to Judges, chapter 2. Another scenario. Now they're in the promised land. And one of the main commandments they were given when they went into the promised land, they'd begun to take a bunch of cities in Joshua, the book of Joshua. You get to Judges, and God had told them over and over again, rid the land of the Canaanites. They were pagans who followed all kinds of pagan gods. They had set up all of these altars to false gods. And he said, you need to get rid of that completely. What happens is they get into the promised land and they don't do that. They, they, they start to take some of the places, but they don't get rid of all of that paganism that was there, just as God had commanded them to do. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make, not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. That's what you're supposed to do, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. You see why it was so important for them to get rid of all those, those, those altars that the Canaanites had set up? Because God wanted to show his holiness to all those nations in the promised land. And he wanted to show his greatness. When they didn't do that, they they retreated from the mission. 
They said, no, we're not going to do everything you've told us to do. And the result was they fell into sin. If you come over to verse 10 in the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Do you have the picture again? Retreat or risk everything. They retreat and they miss out. One more time, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Go over to the right. After Ruth, you'll come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now God's people are in the promised land, and all these different nations around them have kings, and that's how they show their power and their glory, by the kings that they follow. And God has set it up so that he's going to be the king for the people of Israel. They don't need an earthly king. He's going to be the king, and they're going to show, they're going to be on mission to show the the power of a nation that has God as their king. That's what God has set up. Look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. Then they said, give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that what the king who will reign over them will do. And so Samuel does that. Then you come to the end of that chapter, verse 19. Are the people going to retreat and say, we want a king? Or are they going to risk everything and say, okay, we'll follow you, God, as our king? The people refused to listen to Samuel, verse 19. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Then when Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his own town. They retreated. We're not going to give ourselves the mission of showing the nations what it's like when Yahweh God is our king. And God hands them over to all the judgment that would come as a result of that. So you've got the picture. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, God's people face these two options, retreat from the mission or risk everything from the mission. We come to fast forward in the book of Hebrews and we see these people steeped in Jewish tradition knowing the history of the people of God. And the author of Hebrews comes to them and says, you've got two options. Stay in the camp and retreat from the mission or go outside the camp where Jesus is and risk everything from the mission. The mission they'd been given, Acts 1.8. You'll take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth. You'll take it to everybody. You'll risk your lives to take it to everybody. That was the mission they'd been given. And here they are in the book of Hebrews And they're cowering back in fear, and they're going into hiding. Now, some of you are thinking, Dave, thanks for the history lesson. What does this have to do with us today? Well, let's fast forward 2,000 years to God's people in this room on June 11th, 2006. Let me tell you what I see. I see 6,000 people who were swallowed up in an earthquake two weeks ago 
in Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim-dominated nation, and over 600,000 who are now homeless, hungry, and susceptible to all kinds of diseases. All of this following a year where a quarter of a million of them were swept into the ocean by a tsunami, most of them who had little to no knowledge of Jesus Christ. I see hundreds of thousands of Sudanese in the western Darfur region and other places, like the guys you met a couple of months ago, who were living on less than a meal a week. Many of them are brothers and sisters. I see a country like India, where there are more people living in that country below the poverty line than there are people in the United States as a whole. Nearly half the world I see is living on less than $2 a day while all of us, without exception, every single one of us in this room sits here filthy rich compared to the rest of the world. I see a world where 8 million people will die this year alone due to diseases related to their poverty. A world where 300 and 300 million People are suffering today from diseases that are curable, most of them under the age of five years old, suffering from diseases that are curable, in addition to the 40 million who are suffering from HIV, AIDS, and millions of others with cancer. I see thousands upon thousands of our brothers and sisters in countries like China and Laos and North Korea and Saudi Arabia who today are sitting in prisons or today are going to be killed because they have placed their faith in Christ. And on top of all of that, I see a billion people, over a billion in this world who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Now I see all of that and I look back and in the church, in America as a whole, ladies and gentlemen, we have retreated. We have retreated. We have retreated into our nice, big buildings where we sit in our nice, cushioned chairs, where we are isolated and insulated from the inner cities and the spiritual lostness of the world. And while we should be on the firing line for God, Most of us are still in the nurseries of our churches drinking spiritual milk. And I believe we stand at our Kadesh Barnea with the mammoth needs of a lost world without Christ in front of us and a mission to make his glory and his salvation known among those nations. And we have two options. We can either retreat from the mission into a land of religious formalism and style without substance where we have a good time every Sunday but it doesn't matter to the rest of the world a land of wasted opportunity, or we can risk everything to give ourselves to the global purpose for which we have been created as a church. And I want to say to you this morning at the church of Brook Hills, let's risk it all. For the sake of the billion people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, let's risk it all. And for the million people in Metro Birmingham, let's risk it all. For the sakes of the lost people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your families who are headed to a Christless eternity, let's risk it all. For the sake of our lives, our families, our children's lives, let's risk it all. Because ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that if we don't risk it all, if we retreat from this mission, and if we forsake this mission, our God will be faithful to forgive us. He is gracious and merciful, but he will leave us to wander in the wilderness of our religion until we die. I believe he has done it with thousands of churches 
across the United States, even denominations that are dying because they were treated. And I don't want to die in my religion. I want to die in my devotion. Will we die in our religion or die in our devotion? I told you we were jumping in the deep end from the start. Dave, don't you mean die in our religion or live in our devotion? Are we going to live in our devotion to Christ? Well, that leads us to question number two. Question number two for the church at Brook Hills. Will we embrace our comfort or will we embrace his cross? Let's dive a little deeper into what Hebrews 13 is telling us. If you'll get back there with me. He starts talking about how the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. This is referring to the day of atonement. Back in Leviticus chapter 16, they would take the blood of animals and that, that would cleanse them. Once a year they would do this for, for all the sins of the people. And they would put the sins of the people on those animals and they would sacrifice them. It was symbolic of the forgiveness that God would bring them. But then what they would do is they would take the animal outside the camp to burn the animal outside the camp because it represented their sins. And so then it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Because Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't crucified in the middle of Jerusalem. Where was he crucified? John 19 tells us it was outside the city gate. It's right outside the city gates of Jerusalem. The place that was cursed, set apart from Judaism, completely expelled from Judaism. And so then he says, so we need to go outside the city gate with Jesus, bearing the disgrace, the humiliation, the degradation that he bore. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to take one more journey very quickly into the Old Testament just to get a picture of what this phrase outside the camp really means. Let me show you three times in Leviticus. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. I want want to encourage you maybe even to underline these verses in your Bible. Every time you see in these passages outside the camp, kind of underline it. Maybe even put a note out the side that says Hebrews 13. If you're borrowing somebody else's Bible, make sure to get permission before you do that. Leviticus chapter 16. This is talking about the Day of Atonement, what I just described. In order to help us, a couple, couple thousand years later, understand what he means by outside the camp, you've got in your notes there, let's go with Jesus to three different types of places, and we're going to see those in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16, look at verse 27. This is talking about the offering we were just talking about for the sins of the people. And it says, the bull and the goat for the sin offerings whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken, here it is, outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and offal are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. So there's the first time. When Jesus calls us to go outside the camp, and the author of Hebrews says this, first of all, he's telling us to go to the dirty places. The places that represent the sins of the people. That's where you would take this animal. Instead of burning it up there, you've got to take it outside the camp. You've got to burn it there because that is such an unclean thing. This is a dirty place outside the camp. So number one, when Jesus calls us to go outside the camp, he calls us to go to the dirty places. Number two, he calls us to go to the despised places. Turn with me over to Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus chapter 13. This passage that we're coming in on is talking about regulations for people who who have serious diseases or infections. And I want you to look at what verse 45 says. 
Leviticus 13.45 says, The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live, there it is, outside the camp. So if you get this infectious disease, then you have to cover yourself. If anybody comes near you, you yell out, unclean, unclean, and you've got to go live alone outside the camp. Now, maybe that's not so bad if you're sick for a week. What about a leper? That never gets clean. To be alone, outside the camp, despised, where nobody else wants to go. Or you've got to yell out to make sure I don't even come near you. The dirty places, the despised places, and number three, the dangerous places. Look over in Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. This is talking about people who blaspheme against the Lord, who are criminals, and what is to be done and and their payment, basically their restitution. Look at verse 13. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. There it is. Underline it. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether an alien or native-born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. Where does that happen? Outside the camp. You don't want to go outside the camp. It's dirty. It's despised and it's dangerous. There's nothing good that happens outside the camp. And so it's a pretty bold move when the author of Hebrews says to these guys, Jesus went outside the camp. And where Jesus is is where we need to go. We need to go outside the camp with him, bearing the disgrace that he bore. Don't forget Galatians 3 verse 13 tells us that Jesus with his death on a cross, on a tree, showed himself to be cursed by God in their tradition. They believed Jesus was completely cursed, expelled him from the Jewish camp, sent him outside. And this author is telling these Jewish Christians, you need to do the same thing. You don't go to the comfortable places. You go to the dirty places and the dangerous places and the despised places. It'd be like the author of Hebrews coming to us today and say, saying, you need to go where the drug dealers are where the pimps and the prostitutes are, where the unpredictable gangs are, where the housing projects are, where the poor and the destitute and the needy and the abandoned and the people that nobody else wants to be around, that's where you need to be. And the places in the world where disease is most rampant, and the places in the world where terror is most rampant, those are the places that Jesus is. And you need to go to him. But if we're honest... If we're honest, that's not the places where we are. We have this dangerous tendency to create an imaginary Jesus, a more respectable Jesus. He's clean, he's comfortable, even upscale. He doesn't call us to go, he calls us to stay. And he wouldn't put us an uncomfortable situation. And he says, if you follow me, you'll experience prosperity and financial gain and everything will be good with you and well with you and your family will be okay. He says, you don't need to go to any extremes. Just keep living your life according to the standards of the rest of the world. 
Make your money, attend your church, please your conscience Sunday in and Sunday out, even get a good feeling there. You go on living life kind and well and retire comfortably, and that will make everything fine. And what I want to say this morning is that if that is the Jesus you are following, you are not following the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible went to the dirty places and the despised places and the dangerous places and he loved those who were unlovable. He touched those who were untouchable and he paid for it. He was threatened. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was scourged. People spat in his face and he was nailed cruelly to a cross in utter humiliation and degradation and disgrace. And that's where Jesus is. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, do we really want to be where Jesus is? And don't answer that question too quickly. Do you really want to be in the dirty places the places that you can't protect your family completely from? Do you really want to be in the despised places where you don't get credit for being there? You don't even get a thank you from the people who are there. Do you really want to be in the the dangerous places? Let's be honest. Out of the 100 most unreached people groups in the world today, the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them are in countries or areas of the world where people are resistant, maybe even hostile to Christian missionaries. They don't want us there. And so are we really willing to be where Jesus is? This is the the part we struggle with the most, I believe. Because we have this idea, idea we can't figure out why, why God would reward our obedience and our commitment and our sacrifice, why he would reward our obedience with suffering. Why would God not reward our obedience with prosperity and things going better for us? Why would he reward our obedience with suffering? And that's completely foreign to the American mindset. It's completely foreign to it, but it's completely biblical. You've got it on your notes there. Please don't miss this. Mission without suffering is Christianity without a cross. Mission without suffering is Christianity without a cross. If we expect to accomplish this mission of making disciples of all nations as a church apart from suffering, then we are following the wrong Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. We've sung about his death and his taking our sin upon himself, and we've rejoiced, and we've lifted our hands, and we've smiled, and we've sung about how great that is. But that's not where it stops. It stops with us walking out of here and imitating him. He wasn't joking when he said, if you come after me, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and you're going to follow me. When Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to suffer. Because you and I know This world in Birmingham is not going to be reached by a bunch of people who have everything and everything goes well for them and we just turn it into gratitude on Sundays. That's not how we're going to impact this city. And this world beyond Birmingham is not going to be reached by people who have everything and everything goes well for them. It's going to be reached by a people who embrace suffering and pain 
and difficulty. And in the middle of it, they say, Christ is my all. He is all I need. He is all my family needs. It doesn't matter if our house is plundered. All we need is Jesus. That preaches volumes to a lost world. And we get this idea, well, if we give ourselves to the mission, if we really do that, then suffering will come. But even that is not completely true. You've got the the next thing there in your notes. Don't miss this. This is huge. Suffering is not, well, I should have put just there. It's not just a consequence of our mission. It's not just a consequence of our mission. Suffering is the central strategy for achieving our mission. You got that? If we're going to show Christ to the world, then we've got to show the true Christ, not the imaginary Jesus, the true Christ of Scripture. And he's outside the camp. That's where he is, and that's where he calls us to go. I want to share with you a quote that I read in this whole process from the first day the pastor search team met with me and Heather until now. This quote sums up probably the biggest struggle that I and we have had in our hearts when it comes to this whole idea of possibly pastoring the church at Brook Hills. It's from a guy named Joseph Sohn. Joseph Sohn is a Romanian pastor who has experienced deep persecution, was under house arrest there for a long time, been beaten, tortured, And he wrote basically a book on the theology of suffering. It's a very challenging book. And I want you to hear what he writes when he's summarizing Paul's philosophy. When he's summarizing Paul, who went out from the church at Antioch and made the gospel known in very difficult places, and he paid for it. I want you to listen to how he summarizes Paul's philosophy. He pictures Paul thinking, if I had remained pastor in Antioch, In that affluent and peaceful city, in that wonderful church with so many prophets and such great blessings, nobody in Asia Minor or Europe would have been saved. In order for them to be saved, I've had to accept being beaten with rods, scourged, stoned, treated as the scum of the earth, becoming a walking death. But when I walk like this, wounded and bleeding, people see the love of God, people hear the message of the cross, and they are saved. And in these two sentences... If we stay in the safety of our affluent churches and we do not accept the cross, others may not be saved. How many are saved because we don't accept the cross? And that pierces me. Because it shows a picture of a guy who said, I'm not going to pastor in Antioch because I want to show the sufferings of Christ to the world. And I'm not going to stay in the comfortable affluent place. So why? People have asked me, why are you going to the church at Brook Hills? Don't you know there's 1,300 churches in Birmingham? Why are you going to a place that has so much when it comes to comfort and religious, a religion? And Heather and I have always said, we've always said that the only, only reason we are living here in the United States. It's because we're convinced we can do more to affect over there than we are here. And if there any, any time becomes a moment where that is not true, then we are taking a one-way trip out of here. Why come to pastor the Church of Brook Hills? Because I want to be a part of a missional awakening 
and the church that says we are going to show the cross and we're going to risk it all to impact nations for the glory of Christ. That is what... That's what I'm about. And we've got to be a people who are about the same thing. I was in East Asia a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and working with the house churches there. Got picked up, put my hood on. The guy who was picking me up had spent time in jail for his faith. They speed us off into this hidden apartment where we go upstairs, and we were kind of sequestered inside. We couldn't go outside the whole time we were there training these believers. And then uh, we were going to get snuck out that last night, late at night. We were getting our stuff ready, backpack. And uh, it's almost kind of funny. I, I'm sitting there. The two other guys that are Americans who are with me are both dark hair, dark eyes. And, and so they can blend in a little better than this blonde hair, blue-eyed guy. And so I'm sitting there in the chair with my backpack ready to go. And the guy who's been spending time in jail, he's a leader, he spent time in jail, he's a leader in that whole movement. He keeps walking around me kind of in circles and just shaking his head, just looking at me and shaking his head. Like I'm the blonde hair, blue eye guy that's going to get him back in jail. And I'm just feeling horrible. I don't know. I don't know what to, and so he puts this huge coat over me and he says, what you're going to do? He says, if we're going to walk down, hopefully there won't be anybody there, and you're just going to keep your head down and just follow my footsteps in front of you, and we'll get to the getaway car, so to speak. And so, so I put the jacket on. I'm like, Lord, please don't let me be that guy. It ruins the whole thing, okay? And so, so we go down. We open the door outside, and there's people everywhere. I don't look up to see the people everywhere, but, but I see their, their steps everywhere. And so I'm just following this guy right in front of me. We get out into the car, and he kind of pushes me. He had told me just to get in really quick. Well, he pushes me and just nails my head on the side of the car door there and just bang my head there. I was like, ow! And, and he starts pushing me in, trying to push something really big through a little hole because I had my backpack on, and he's just trying to push me. It was the most graceless getaway ever. And then we speed off, and these guys, I found out later the next morning, they totaled the car. They were, they were driving like crazy. And this is a daily reality for them. This is what they do. They're not retreating from the mission. They're risking everything from the mission. They're out there. They're doing it. This is a daily reality for them. I'm sitting there the whole week, week and a half we were there, with a group of about 20 believers, all of them learning Arabic so they can go into Muslim nations to proclaim the gospel. Three of them going to Yemen. One girl with tears saying, I want to go to Iraq. I have a burden for Iraq. One going to Afghanistan. One going to Africa, North Africa. And at the end of that time, they asked me to go around and pray for each of them. And I did. I went around and I prayed for them one by one. And I want you to know that as I prayed for them, I prayed for you. At this point in time, things were pretty much moving forward with this whole deal. And you were on my heart and you were on my mind constantly. And I prayed for you. And I prayed that God would raise up some students from this room with a burden for Iraq. And I prayed that God would raise up some businessmen who would take their families to Afghanistan. And I prayed that God would raise up some women who would get a heart for 13-year-old girls and the Tukalur Muslim people of West Africa who are being sold into prostitution today. I pray that God would raise up families that would adopt unreached people groups. And I pray that God would raise up 
some retirees who would say they're going to live out their golden years making the gospel known among people who've never heard the name of Christ. And I pray, I pray that God would make us a people that embrace his cross before our comfort. One more question and then we'll be finished. Will we die in our religion or die in our devotion? Will we embrace our comfort or will we embrace his cross? And will we live for pleasure in this world or paradise in the world to come? We don't have a lot of time to camp out here. I want to just fly through this. But when we come to the end of Hebrews 13, he gives us the reason. Some of you are thinking, Dave, you're kind of, the way you're talking, it's almost a little insane. It's a little pathological. Why would you embrace suffering? Why would you embrace a cross like that? That's a weird way to live. And it is. It is a weird way to live in our culture. But it's not pathological and it's not insane. Here's why. We have an enduring city that is to come. We don't live for this city. The author of Hebrews is saying to them, you don't live for the camp of Judaism. You don't live for Jerusalem. That's not the city you live for. You live for a new Jerusalem. You don't live for pleasure in this world. You live for paradise in the world to come. That's why one chapter before this, you look at Hebrews chapter 12. You remember these verses, verses 1 through 3? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what set before him? The joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. How do you go to the cross with joy? You go to the cross with joy because you know that you're about to sit at the right hand of the Father. Jesus didn't stop to enjoy the pleasures of the world on the way. He knew where his home was. He knew what he was living for. He wasn't living for the city of Jerusalem. He was living for the city to come. And that's a radically different way to live. And I think the author of Hebrews is saying to you and me this morning, Jesus did not die to make our lives in Birmingham a paradise. He didn't die to make Birmingham a place of pleasure. Jesus died so that we would forsake the pleasures of Birmingham and live for the paradise that is to come. What did Jesus do when he went outside the camp? Hung on a cross and he turned to a dirty thief and he said, today you will be with me where? In paradise. And what Jesus is saying to us in this passage, bottom line, bottom line, two things. Number one, the greatest earthly security is ultimately insecure. Your 401k, your investments, your job, your career, whatever you place your security in, it's ultimately insecure because the bottom line is we're living for another world. And if we live for the other world, we will have to endure much in this world and we will miss out on many of the pleasures of this world, but the result will be it will be worth it. The bottom line is it's worth it. And that leads us to an overarching biblical truth that I want us to close with in two sections. Number one, Jesus calls the church to live according to a radically different definition of success than the rest of the world. Jesus calls the church at Brook Hills to live according to a radically different definition of success than the rest of the world. Success in the rest of the world is is measured by how big things are and how much things are, how prosperous things are financially. That's not how we measure things in the church. Success in the church is measured by the fact that we are outside the camp with him. This set is designed to give a picture of the church as an institution and the church's buildings that are set up 
as a place for us to come. And the most chilling part of this passage of Scripture is that if this is what the church is about, even this building, and getting success the way the world would define success, if this is what we're about, the most chilling part of this passage of Scripture is we will go through the history of the church of Brook Hills and Jesus won't even be there. You catch that? Because he's not inside the camp. He's outside the camp. That's where he is. And it's very possible for people to go through an entire life of going to church and completely miss out on the Jesus who was outside the camp the entire time. These guys over in Asia, they told me, I wrote it down, we've noticed that many Westerners tend to be very excited and motivated by numbers, but we are not. Our goal is nothing less than the completion of the Great Commission so that the Lord Jesus Christ will return for his bride to bring all of human history to the moment in Scripture where voices are heard in heaven proclaiming the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That is our goal and our purpose and we are willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill this mission and be obedient to our calling. And what I want to say to you this morning the church at Brook Hills is success will not be determined at this church by how many or how much. Success will be determined based on whether or not we are fulfilling the great commission that has been entrusted to us. Because I want to be where Jesus is. And to make it a little more personal, not only does Jesus call the church to live according to a radically different definition of success, but Jesus calls me. And I want you to put me in that blank. Jesus calls me. Not me, David. You, to live according to a radically different definition of success than the rest of the world. Guys, let's be honest. If we really took this to heart, our lives would look a lot different than the rest of the world. And our church would look a lot different than the rest of the world. But I believe that's what God has designed for us to do because that's when his glory will be displayed most clearly through us. I pray that it would not be said the Church of Brook Hills is a church that has a great music program, or a great preacher, I pray that the church of Brook Hills, it would be said that God is showing his glory to the world through that church. And I want to be a part of that. What are the biggest hindrances in your life keeping you from obeying Christ's command to make disciples? And what about in your church? Some questions to ponder after today's sermon. Again, you can hear all previous episodes of Radical with David Platt on our website at Radical.net. Next week on the podcast, Jesus promised to build his church in Matthew 16, and he guaranteed that not even the gates of hell would stop him. Therefore, the church must have Christ as its center. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. We'll see you next week.